Okay, so this week we're doing humanity. Question is, what are you? There's a handouts up here and cookies and coffee and tea and, and fattening things that are really, if you don't eat them, I may have to. So. Sorry, That's okay. There's a handful of folks not going to be here, so. I'm having trouble. It's, it's a complicated task. And Steve texted right before I was like I was pulling out of the driveway, and he's like, "I'm not gonna be able to make it tonight." So I've got to eventually sit down and get these audio recordings edited and uploaded because I keep saying I'm going to, and I haven't done it yet. So this week we're gonna start talking about humanity. What are you? And uh, so let's take a look real quick at the statement of faith. Uh, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. So um, Psalm 8 says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. So Humanity's got this really interesting place in the structure of, of the universe. We're below God, we're below the angels, but we're above all of the creatures and, and all of creation. And so we've got this, this kind of unique spot there. And so the question is, you know, why would you take notice? Of, there's so many more majestic things above us. Why would you care about us? Um, but, that we, but he does. He, he cares for humanity. And so when we ask this question of, what is humanity? What are human beings? Um, however we formulate this, whatever we get to, we have to start thinking along these lines. Um, God did it. God created humanity. We weren't uh, some cosmic accident that happened and God stumbled across us and went, oh, I like that. I'll, I'll hang out with them. God did it. And he did it on purpose. God does things on purpose. So he had a reason for creating humanity. And um and he made us distinct from the animals. We're, we're with the animals. We're created in similar fashion to the animals, but we're distinct. Because none of the animals did God say, let us create animals in our image. It was only uh, humans that he did that. And so we alone have that image of God. And then um, we mentioned last week we were talking about creation and uh, the order of creation. We have to also acknowledge the Bible says that Eve originated from Adam. Adam was first. And then Eve came from him somehow. Um, so when we think of humanity this way, that slow, steady, blind, naturalistic, Darwinian evolution is not going to do it. It just is not going to answer what the scriptures say. It won't give us that, uh, the, uh, the, the truth of what the Bible is revealing. By the way, it doesn't match the fossil record either. Um, you don't get this slow, steady progress in the fossil record. What you get is explosive growth and then a steady state for a while, and then explosive diversity. And it's not the Darwinian model of it just keeps getting better kind of thing. Um, so as we hold to the scriptures, we have to acknowledge there's something unique about man. Uh, so what is man? Have you ever seen this before? Um, you don't have a soul. You have, a, Or you don't have a soul. You are a soul. Um, you have a body. 
John Piper retweeted this in 2011. Ravi Zacharias quoted it in at least one of his books. His 2010 book is Christianity Failed You. Um, the thing is, C.S. Lewis never said it. Whoever said it was wrong. You're not a soul. We're more than that. So it's uh, these AZ misquotes is how I changed that. Uh, the, one of the examples that we find of somebody saying that was Walter M. Miller's 1959 science fiction novel, uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. And then it says, you don't have a soul, doctor. You are a soul. You have a body temporarily. Um, the earliest example they've been able to find of who said this was from an 1892 um, uh, a Quaker periodical that was published in England. Um, and it was <laughs> the, uh, the, the article that this was in was about excessive mourning at funerals. And so the article says, never tell a child, said George MacDonald, you have a soul. Teach him you are a soul. You have a body. As we learn to think of things always in this order, that the body is but temporary clothing for the soul, our views of death and the unbefittingness of customary mourning will approximate those of friends of earlier generations. So the idea here is, and George MacDonald, by the way, didn't say this either, but they quoted him as saying it. Um, the idea is the, the body is a temporary clothing for the soul, that who we really are is the soul. That, that's, that's not what we're going to see tonight. Here's another one. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his, his full name, but Deschardins. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings, have a human experience. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's not true either. <laughs> he didn't say that. I don't know who said it, but again, whoever said it was wrong. Uh, we're not simply spiritual beings. Um, Deschardins was a uh, Jesuit priest in the first half of the 20th century. Um, he was involved in, have you ever heard of the Piltdown Man? There was an archaeological dig, I think it was in England, and they found a, a tooth, and they, they claimed this was the Piltdown Man and built this whole big um, evolutionary thing about it. It was actually a pig tooth, and he was involved in that. And so some people thought that he might have been involved in the fraud. But he was uh, involved in... Um, uh, I can't remember, there was another archaeological dig that was a real early human that, that he was involved in. He, was, he believed in evolution and, and some other things, and so he got in trouble with Rome quite a bit. But uh, he didn't, he didn't, that wasn't one of his errors. That wasn't one of his mistakes. Those two Satans are not horribly wrong. They're not like damnable heresy. They're just very incomplete pictures of who we are, of what we are. And so when we look at the human being, you have to ask, what is a person? What are we made up of? And so there's three different kind of approaches to this. Uh, one is we say that we're a trichotomy. And a trichotomy is, uh, is used of humanity when we speak of body, spirit, and soul. It's three distinct parts of humanity. A dichotomy says, well, soul and spirit are actually synonyms for pretty much the same thing. And then there's an idea called monism, which is really just materialism. It says human beings are complex chemical reactions and nothing more. So there's, there's only one part to us. So trichotomy. Why, do we, why would we say that, there's a, that human beings are, are a trichotomy? Uh, a couple of scriptures come up. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a scripture that quotes the three together. 
Um, the other one that comes up often is Hebrews 4.20 or 4.12. It says, the, li- the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. So there seems to be a, a difference between them. So that's just the idea of a trichotomy. Um, why would we not go with that then? Why would some people say, well, no, we're a dichotomy. We're actually spirit and body. Um, there are some other scriptures that make this a little more complicated. For example, John 12.27 says, uh, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And then the next chapter, it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So the question is, if his soul is troubled and he's troubled in his spirit, was that two different emotional states? Was it two different things or was it just the same way of saying the same thing? And then the other place that I think makes a similar case is uh, the Magnificat, uh, Mary's prayer after the annunciation of Jesus' birth. Uh, it starts with her saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Now, in Hebrew poetry, there's a thing called parallelism where you'll have two lines right next to each other and they're saying the same things. They're using different words or they'll say opposite things or something like that. This seems to be typical Hebrew parallelism where she's saying her soul and her spirit are doing the same thing. And so perhaps. We're, we're talking soul and spirit are not that different. And then the other thing is we can say either our spirit or our soul go to heaven or go to hell. Um, they're, they're, they're used that way. So, for example, 1 Peter 3.19. Um, <laughs> that's coming up in a little bit, and I'm getting a little nervous because this is a hard verse to, pat, uh, to uh, explain. This, uh, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So Jesus went to the spirits in prison. That's understood to mean the spirits who have departed and they're dead. Um, and then when you see who, what context they're in, those are spirits that are in hell. Those were the people who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And then Revelation 20 says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus under the altar. So the souls are seen in heaven. So it seems like the, uh, the soul and spirit could be used interchangeably. Anybody have a strong opinion on that one way or another? Any thoughts on that? Are we trichotomy or dichotomy? Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like functionally dichotomy makes more sense. Uh huh. But that's from a like pragmatic standpoint. Yeah, and pragmatism is okay in some cases. <laughs> Because here's my question, is what's the difference between the soul and the spirit? I feel like, especially in today's culture, spirit feels very, I don't know, maybe maybe it could be for souls too, for soul too, but like my spirit longs for a diet soda or something mm-hmm. instead of like a deep, meaningful thing. Like people kind of, I feel like in a way people have a way of like cheapening spirit. Mm-hmm. in, like, worldly standards, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. But I guess you could say the same thing about soul. And, and Deep in my soul, I would love a Coke Zero or <laughs> something like that, like right? Like that first cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay, Jim. Try something here. I don't know how far you're going to go with this. Um, soul can be considered out here. The definition of an out there. A consciousness of yourself. Hmm. We hmm. are all different. So Jim is saying that soul could be a consciousness of self. I'm just saying it for the recording. So. Yeah. Okay. And 
God said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Mm-hmm. So the spirit is, and that God controls that spirit. Mm-hmm. And so, so, I mean, yeah, it's So, my take on it is, I tend to think um, that we are constitutionally a dichotomy. We're a body and a spirit. Um, it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Which part is absent? Well, a lot of places talk about the spirit. So if our spirit's not in our body, we're functionally dead. So then what's a soul? And, and why would we use the three in, uh, together in that First Thessalonians passage? I think soul might be... Uh, I've been trying to read through and, and pay attention to this as I'm reading through it. I'm not 100%, so I could be wrong on this. But I kind of think that soul is the overlap of the body and the spirit, the, the uh, animating force within us. So when our spirit departs, our soul's gone also because we're no longer alive and our body stays here and rots. Um, but that doesn't really help because the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony were under the altar and crying out, how long, O Lord? So I, I kind of lean toward maybe they're synonyms, but then I don't know what to do with First Thessalonians 5 and, and, um, and uh, Hebrews, division of soul and spirit and it, it just it it won't fit conveniently for me. Right. Um, but uh, it also talks about the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the, that that I think the context of that might be them going to heaven as well. So. Was it possible there's some cultural elements at play here where the you know, Greek thinking? I, I read a bit about this, but the, they had their own definitions for the various elements. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of culturally inspired and, and, and less so, I guess you could say, theologically inspired. And mm-hmm. it was sort of like a lot of them throwing around things that they all kind of understood, but it doesn't ultimately have a lot of impact you know, pragmatically on us today. Yeah, and I think we don't need to get too hung up on it. Um, and I think it's it, the Bible may use them interchangeably in some places, and that's okay. And maybe that's the best we can do. The only time I can remember really being bothered by this is I heard um, some uh, radio preacher one morning when I was getting ready to go to work, and he was saying that um, our spirit is at war with our soul within us. And I'm like, what? <laughs> because your spirit's been born again, but your soul hasn't, and it's going. And I'm like, man, where are you getting that stuff? So uh, there, there can be some abuses of trichotomy when you start getting into trying to define things that the Bible doesn't define. Um, so uh, whatever it is, however it fits together, what we know is um, we are an immaterial portion and the material portion. So another question to, on this is, are these divisions, body, soul, and spirit, are these divisions even meaningful? Because they're not the only ones the Bible uses. So, for example, in Mark 12.30, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So does that mean that we're quadrotomy? That the uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength are, are four different parts of us? Or 1 Corinthians 14 says, "For I pray, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I also sing praise with my mind. So mind, which is not in there, is, is part of this equation too. 
So it's, it's kind of almost asking, is this a helpful um, division? Do you have something, Margaret? You look like you were about to say something. No? Okay. What makes me go back to like, what Kyle was saying is maybe there's some sort of cultural difference, maybe like a different way of expressing it yeah because like when we talk uh, about a shipwreck we say all souls were lost mm -hmm. in the shipwreck um, does that mean that their spirits were not lost their spirit and body is still together they're just their soul departed or something it's it's almost it's like it we can kind of sometimes think of it as, as an animating force as a life force but even that's not quite it you know there's there's I don't know it, it's just tough it's hard to, to figure it out um, so however this happens this material and immaterial portion of us or two immaterial portions or whatever it is uh, one of the questions is where does this the immaterial portion come from so we know when uh, an egg is fertilized the cells begin to divide the cell plants on the uterine wall and we begin to get a baby there's a, there's a life there where does the soul come from and so when we ask about the soul or the spirit there's three different approaches to that there's creationism, which is God creates the soul at the time of conception. So when, when the, the um, perhaps when the egg is fertilized, maybe it's when the egg implants on the uterine wall and begins to divide. Um, maybe when it's divided enough where it's not going to fall off and, and be lost or something like that. But at some point in, in the birth process, God creates a soul and implants it in that fetus. So that's creationism. And you get that from Zechariah 12.1, which I thought I had quoted here. Uh, Zechariah 12.1 talks about God creating the spirit of a man. So it's, that's the idea of the creationism. Traducianism, that's a really fancy word, uh, traducianism, um, says that the soul is created the similar, similar to how the body is created. Two components, one from the mother, one from the father, come together to create a physical body. And the idea is that a soul within a person does the same thing. You inherit some of it from your father and your mother. And where does that idea come from? Well, in Hebrews 7, talks about the superiority of the Melchizedek, uh, the, the Melchizedek um, priesthood. And the way that the author of Hebrews proves that Melchizedek is superior to Levi, is he said Levi was in his father's loins when Abraham offered a tithe to Melchizedek. So that idea is, in some way, Levi was in Abraham at that time. And so he, he could be thought of as, as physically, but maybe not. Maybe we're talking spiritual there. So the idea would be that that element of uh, Abraham's spirit came to be uh, existent in Levi when he was born. And then there's another one called pre-existentialism. And um, this is the idea that the soul was in heaven before the creation of the body. The Mormons, this is a major Mormon doctrine. This is really big for them because there was a war in heaven, and we were there in that war. And so depending on how we did in that war in heaven depends on what happens to us here. And, and uh, Heavenly Father had just a bunch of spirit babies and then created bodies to throw them in. So this is big, big-time Mormon doctrine. Um, it's also uh, present in Islam. Islam says that when God created Adam, he created all our spirits at the same time. 
And so we're just in heaven waiting for the spirits, uh, for the bodies to come along to do it. And some of the ways that it's proven is from Jeremiah 145, which says, before I was born, you knew me. Now, I don't think that that proves that um, before he was born, he existed. The idea of knowing him could just be God had an idea of who Jeremiah would be before he existed. Um, so that's kind of a distortion of it. Um, and then there's another one, too, another source for this, and that's Pixar. So the new movie Soul, which was a great movie, but what's happening there is these souls are up in heaven, and they're waiting to, uh, to get a body, and they jump through this hole and fly down and, and land in a body, and that's where you come from. So uh, this guy died, and he got off the elevator and wound up in the wrong place. Instead of going to where souls go after you live, he goes to where they originate. And so that's the line. Is this heaven? This is where new souls get their personalities, interests, and quirks before they go to earth. <laughs> yeah, no, they get that at earth. <laughs> they get that on earth. <laughs> um, so that, that's the, the Pixar uh, pre-existentialism as well. Here's the problem. Uh, the Second Council of Constantinople, uh, they had to address this question because Origen, who was for a long time a very good, solid Bible teacher, um, he began to kind of get weird later on in his life. And he developed this idea that um, when God created the universe, he created a ton of souls all at the same time that he created the universe and that he wanted them to freely worship and love him. And so what he did was he would put these souls into bodies and let them freely choose if they would love him or not. Uh, same thing with the angels. The angels could freely choose if they would love him or not. And so uh, what happens is after they die, they go to punishment. But these souls will eventually be reborn. The souls of the righteous and the unrighteous will be reborn again, and they will go to heaven. And the devils and the angels will be reborn again, and they will go to heaven. And so this was a, a form of universalism that he embraced. And so the second council says, if anyone asserts the fabulous preexistence of souls... <laughs> I'm sure that's an interesting translation. It's not fabulous as in, you know, flashy. If anyone asserts the fabulous preexistence of souls and shall assert the monstrous restoration which follows from it, let him be anathema. The monstrous res uh, res restoration is that rebirth of the soul, being born again and having another shot. So the church condemned that in uh, 553. Um, have you ever heard yeah, – when – Lisa and I were talking about this one time, and she was like, she kind of thought of herself being like in a giant gumball machine in heaven and just waiting for her turn, and then God would turn the crank, and her little soul would pop out and drop into the body when her mom got pregnant, and that's where we came from. Um, not that Rome ever taught that, but it's just kind of a way to, you know, kids think about that. Is I'm, I'm, I must have come from somewhere. Do you have something, Jim? Yeah, I'm thinking that. Because God had everything he needed organized already. 
So it's a good thing that when God turned the gumball crank, the right spirit came out and went, or soul went into Samson's body. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, God's very specific. And you're also invoking Deuteronomy 29, 29, secret things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're kind of speculating here. There's not a whole bunch of scripture to, to rest on. Well, scripture, like the Samson, that was very specific. And yet he was one. Oh yeah, because his birth was was told to his parents before she even conceived. Yeah. yeah. But Andy was going to be a Nazareth. Yep. Isn't the concept of a soul pre-existing kind of shut down by the whole concept of Christ being fully human? Hmm. Because if Christ was fully human, then there is a chance if a soul was pre-existing. That the wrong one would have been Christ, right? <laughs> or just the fact that Christ, Jesus didn't exist before he was born. The Son of God eternally existed. If we say that the soul pre-exists, then Jesus existed before he was born, and now you've got this eternally begotten Son of God being two natures or portion of two natures before his birth, and then it gets really dodgy. <laughs> not not that particular version of it. Yeah. Um, do you have something, Christopher? You were waving earlier. So who are these guys with the Second Council of Constantinople? There were a bunch of bishops in Constantinople for the second time. This is before or after it became the temple. This was well before. Yeah. Um, it was still Constantinople in, in the 1200s. So. Yeah. So they. They were going both of them. They were going after after origin. There's more that's said in that council than just this. Um, they were really going after origin because he was beginning to get quite a following. Because he was such a great preacher and teacher before he started embracing some of this weird stuff. Um, I didn't care for some of his stuff because he used um, a method of interpreting the scripture that was allegorical. So, for example, you would look at the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, you see there's wood overlaid with gold. And then put in it is the tablets and then a lid put on. And that's representative of Jesus because Jesus is human. He's wood and he's divine. He's gold. And in him is the law. And so that's what you know, that's the, one of the ways that they would interpret things. Well, that's, you can find anything anywhere when you do that. You know, you can find um, the um, scarlet thread coming out of the window in, Jer in um, Jericho. Well, this is clearly the blood of Christ being spilled throughout the... It's like, what? It's a scarlet thread. You know, it's like a traffic cone saying, hey, don't, don't crash this wall down. They had a lot of scarlet threads in the having of the temple. This was this was uh, Rahab's. She just had some laying around, so she was like, "Hey, don't don't kill us." Yeah. So um, the next part of who we are, unfortunately, is that we are sinners. Um, our statement of faith said that that we are in in um, in how did that go? In alliance with or in in conjunction with it, in agreement with Adam, we are sinners by nature. 
So what do we mean by sin? What is sin? Um, Grudem says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And then the Westminster Larger Confe- or Short, Longer Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God's law. I wonder if that's right. Any law of God's law? Um, that's The problem I have with that is, is we're thinking of the law. What was sin before Moses received the Ten Commandments? What was sin um, when Abraham was on the earth? Um, it, it could be, it, it would be the law written on the heart, but um, I don't think that law is really the answer to sin. I think there's, there's something a little bit more to it than that. Um, one of the theologians that I, I like, even when he's wrong, <laughs> is uh, John Frame. And uh, John Frame has this approach to understanding things that is uh, tripartite. He's, he's looking for Trinitarian forms in all things. So this is how he would explain it, using his, his triangle uh, kind of standard, is there's a standard, there's a goal, and there's a motive in anything we do. So there's some standard, there's some goal, and there's some motive. And so what is a righteous deed that conforms to God's law in that? Well, it is, um, the, it meets the standard, it's done right. So it's not murder would be outside of God's law or adultery or something like that. That would be outside. So what's done is right. But you can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And so he says, what is the goal of what you're doing? Is the goal for you to be look good amongst your peers or is it God's glory? And so there's the what is done is correct. It's done for the right reason. And then it's done for the right motive. And the motive is faith. It's not... Um, I can do this on my own, and God's going to really appreciate this, but it's based on faith. So that's kind of the, the tripartite way he's approaching it. Is. Can you make a distinction between goal and motive? Um, I think so, because my motive might be to, um, to paint my house, or my goal might be to paint my house. That's my goal. My motive is because I don't want it to look shabby, or I want, the, the, I want the wood to last longer, or my neighbors are nagging me, or my neighbor got it done, and now I get So there's a bunch of different motives for, for getting to that goal. So with, with Frame's tripartite thing here, what he's saying is to be, for a deed to be righteous, it has to be, meet God's standard, so it meets the law, but that's, it's not sufficient to just say it meets the law. It also has to have the right motive. We have to do it in faith. If we're not doing it in faith, then it, sin is what the New Testament tells us. And then the goal has to be for God's glory. And I think those, that's where these two kind of get really close is, you know, if, if you're doing it from faith, it's going to be for God's glory, you know, but, but that's, that's how he does it. So what would sin be then? Well, sin would be some act of disobedience, not following God's, God's commandment. The motivation might be unbelief or hatred, it would be a, an, an impure motivation. And the goal would be self-glorification. And so the real problem with that is, is look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees got the, the, the top one. They got the law. They nailed it. But they weren't doing it from faith. They were doing it from the, the position of, I can do this. I'll just work real hard. And their goal was so that they would look good in front of other people. So they thought that God would be really super impressed with them if they did all that stuff. So 
you could get parts of this right and still be wrong. You know, you could still do it wrong. So that's that's one of the reasons I like uh, Frame's tripartite thing is is it's kind of an interesting way to um, to put those together. And he's he, you go through a systematic theology and there's triangles like that through the whole thing. He's he's analyzing everything in a tripartite fashion, and I find it kind of helpful. Um, so that's what sin is. How do we get here? How do we get to the point with sin? Here's a question. Is sin part of human nature? Didn't ask that. I said, is it part of human nature? The capacity is, yeah. But is sin part of our human nature? No, because Adam was created without sin. He had the potential. He could have. Unfortunately, he did. But Jesus, if, if sin was, was part of human nature, then Jesus wasn't fully human. Because he was like us in all things except for sin. So. Yep. But Christ never, never was born without that. Yeah, and that, there's there's the question is because when we say if sin is not part of human nature, it's part of fallen human nature, but it's not part of what God would define as human nature because Adam was created without sin. And so when Jesus comes along as the second Adam, he comes without sin. And um, and so sin is not part of who we are. It's what we got. It's, it's where we're at now. So like you were saying, the problem is Adam fell. Sin entered the world, and uh, Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world for, through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So our sin is part of who we are, but it's not a natural part of who we are. It's an invader. It, it, it's not supposed to be there. And in the end, when sin and death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire, humanity still exists. It's the deficiency that's been removed. Um, so this idea of sin in the world has come because of Adam's fall, because Adam, what Adam did. First um, Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, for as in all Adam, <laughs> sorry, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So it's it's the second Adam. It's this redoing. And so uh, the other one is First uh, Timothy 2. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. But we fell in Adam. So why is it that we have fallen in Adam if Eve ate first? Why didn't we fall in Eve? That's not that's not far off, yeah. Because he he wasn't deceived. The the other technical term we use is he's our leader. He's our our federal head. He is our he was our representative in the garden. So people say, why is it fair? It's not fair that I'm held guilty for Adam's sin. I wasn't there. Well, in a way, you were because Adam represented all of humanity as he stood there. And, and if you don't like that, 
then you're not going to be real crazy about the American form of government. Because even if you didn't vote for Dianne Feinstein, she is our representative. She is in Congress. And she is, she is standing there representing the people of California. Even if, even if you don't like Mike McCarthy, he is our representative. He is our federal head. He's standing there representing us. Even if you don't like Joe Biden or Donald Trump, they are our representatives. They are the federal head. They are the head of the federal government. So they stand and they represent us, even if they don't do what we want. <laughs> so it would be really easy for us to say, well, if I had been there, I wouldn't have sinned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> you can't know that. But that's the idea is, is Adam represented us. The other thing that happens is uh, Genesis chapter 5. God created Adam, and then Adam and Eve had, had Cain in his image, and then they had this child in his image and in his image and in his image. So God created Adam and Eve in his image, and then they sinned, and then they had a bunch of kids who were in his image sinners. So that's the idea of original sin is we have inherited this messed up state. Um, it's, but it's not our fault. How can we be held accountable? Because what happens is we authenticate that state on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. That's why, for example, uh, Romans 3 um, goes through this long list. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. All have, you know, there, there's nobody that hasn't sinned. Um, and so that's the idea of this is, we're all in this boat together. So Adam sinned. And we are guilty in Adam, and then we just authenticate and authenticate and authenticate. We go back and say, yep, um, that's exactly who we are, is, is we're sinners. So we're continuing to sin. So the question is, do you sin because you're a sinner, or are you a sinner because you sin? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. You're a sinner because you sin, but why do you sin? Because you're born a sinner. So are people born naturally good and learn bad behavior, or are people born bad and just restrain their bad behavior? Yeah. This is kind of a popular notion of the tabula rosa. People are born, and they're just this clean white tablet onto which anything could be written. And, boy, it's just horrible that, that you know, we get in there and corrupt them. Um, this is mainly said by people who have never had a two-year-old. <laughs> It's like, I did not teach this child this. Where did they get this? <laughs> Where did this come from? Um, yeah, so that's, that's this, this condition we're in now is we are sinners because we were born sinners. And then what Ephesians 2 tells us is, um, I got Ephesians 2, 4 through 4. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking of there. Um, Ephesians 2 tells us is that we were dead in their sins and trespasses. So in some fashion... Sin has killed something in us, and we're, we're dead in our sins and trespasses, but we've been made alive again through faith in Christ. And so that's the hope that we have is we can be born again. We can come back to life in whatever way that we have died through sin. So um, that's unfortunately who we are. Any, any questions or discussion or anything else you want to talk about about the nature of human beings? Okay, well, let's see. We've got a hymn, and it's an oldie, but a goodie. Um, hopefully you'll know this one. <laughs> 